At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Yo, yo, I'm Peter J. Kim on the Food 52 Podcast Network. And this is Counter Jam, the show that celebrates culture through food and music. On this episode, we're looking at one of the most diverse and far-reaching cultures out there. Jewish culture. Holla! Sorry, I know. Look, I'm a dad. I get to make these kinds of jokes, right? My guests are 19-year-old food whiz and social media sensation Eitan Bernath, actress, comedian, and Broad City creator Alana Glazer, and renowned chef and author Enat Admoni. We'll talk through the symbolism, common threads, and diversity of the Jewish culinary identity, and we'll tip our hats to some badass bubbies. Along the way, we're going to listen to some tunes by Gitkin, a New Orleans-based Jewish-American guitarist with, in his own words, an international funky vibe. Many of his songs are heavily influenced by surf rock, which is a genre of music that I really dig. To me, it's defined by a driving beat and ethereal guitar work with a heavy Middle Eastern influence. It's basically the kind of music that makes me want to throw on some shades and get down. Enjoy this song from Gitkin. It's called Catnip. By Gitkin. Let's try something. Close your eyes. I want you to picture Jewish food. What do you see? Hmm, I see bagels, smoked fish, matzo ball soup, brisket, latkes, kugel, and maybe some babka. Yep, I could pretty much crush a chocolate babka anytime. All right, open your eyes. If you were seeing the same things that I saw, what we were visualizing were the foods of a specific Jewish cultural group, the Ashkenazim, 
Jews of Central or Eastern European descent. Most Jewish people in the U.S. and actually in the world are Ashkenazi Jews. It's thanks to them that foods we know and love like pastrami, challah, bagels, and lox became popular in the U.S. But there are lots of Jews who are not Ashkenazi. Notably, there are Sephardim and Mizrahim. Sephardim are descendants of a group of Jews who were expelled from Spain in the 15th century. A lot of them migrated to North Africa and the Middle East. Mizrahim have Middle Eastern ancestry. You'll find Mizrahi Jews in, for example, Iraq and Iran, as well as, of course, Israel. And then, of course, there are Jews in countries as far-flung as China, India, Ethiopia, and Trinidad. All of this is to say that Jewish identity is really a wide-ranging mosaic of identities, of which the Ashkenazi identity is just one important part. In the U.S., especially for non-Jewish folks such as myself, we have a tendency to conflate Ashkenazi with Jewish. Here's what Ilana Glazer had to say about that. I like learned about this phrase recently called Ashkenormativity. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm Ashkenazi. I'm like Russian and Lithuanian, Romanian, Eastern European. And I think because of like literally like Woody Allen, who's gross. I mean, we, we've all known that, but I'm just, yes. you know, he was just such a cultural figure of a, whatever, Nebishi Jew and Seinfeld and Philip Roth or whatever. It's like we have this idea that it's Ashkenazis, which I am, so I'm here right. representing <laughs> yes. the mainstream, but I appreciate you um, acknowledging all the corners of the uh, Jewish world. Ashkenormativity. Now, that is a hell of a Scrabble word. Eitan Bernath spoke to the diversity hidden behind the Ashkenormative veil, if I may coin a term. Um, so, for example, I have a friend when I, obviously before the pandemic, when I visited him um, and stayed at his house for weekends, like when we'd go to his grandma's house, like they would make all this delicious Persian food. And like, that's Jewish food, but that Jewish food looks nothing like the Jewish food I grew up right. on. For me, um, my, my family is from Europe. We're um, Ashkenazi Jews, specifically mostly from Hungary. And so, like, for me, Jewish food, but I think a more, like, traditional kind of old-timey food is, like, Hungarian goulash. Mm. Or, like, sometimes my grandma would make, like, chicken paprikash. And those kind of more Eastern European foods. Um, but whereas, like, I know people who went to my high school that were, like, Asian Jews. So their Jewish food comes from different cuisines, like Thailand and China and right. all these great places. And there are Indian Jews. Actually, I know someone who lives in Mumbai um, and he's an Indian Jew. And, like, they didn't convert to Judaism. They've been there for thousands of years in India. And it's fascinating how, like, they have all their holidays and traditions, but, like, their traditional foods for Passover and all these things are Indian food, but that's, like, also Jewish food. Right. Chef Enat Admoni, who owns several excellent restaurants here in New York City, is someone who perfectly embodies this diversity. She is Mizrahi. She spoke to the cultures that influenced her kitchen growing up. Yeah, so my dad is Yamanite, born in Israel before it was Israel. So, but he was very, very close to his culture and food, mostly about the food. He's, he was super um, obsessed with everything Yamanite food. My mom born in Iran and came to Israel when she was very young, like around 10 years old. But then around age of 11, 12, she was adopted kind of in a foster home, Iraqi home. So all her childhood, mm. she was raised by Iraqi parents. So she had, she all her life knew how to make Persian and Iraqi food. So we grew up in our home with, the basic was Yemenite, Iraqi, and Persian. 
but at the same time, most of the neighbors was Ashkenazi, so we will get some cool girls here and there. And then I have the next door neighbor was Moroccan. And so I learned a lot of Moroccan food when I was young. She's like my second mom and, you know, so, but this is the food I grew up. It's mostly Iraqi, Yemenite and Persian, I would say. All right, so we've established that Jewish culture has many, many facets. One obvious commonality that binds many Jews is religion, but looking at the food culture, is there a common thread? Well, one possible thread is the holiday. There are a lot of Jewish holidays, and they often have specific food traditions. Hanukkah is one that I've often admired from afar, for the very same reason that Eitan loves it. Oil. We eat fried food because the oil lasted in the story for eight days. And so because of that oil lasting, we then eat a lot of oil food. For me, I eat fried food all the time, but it's kind of an excuse for everyone to also do it, <laughs> even though I don't personally need an excuse. Uh, so we eat things like donuts, sufganiyot, which are jelly stuffed donuts. We eat lakas or really any types of fried food. I mean, for me, it's an excuse when my parents always get annoyed when I lived at home that I, I like we always at home have like two to three pots of oil because I'm always deep frying food. And on Hanukkah, it's like, okay, you can't be mad at me. Like, I'm going to have tons of pots of oil. We're going to get lots of fried food. I always make general... I actually always make... You know, it's a big Hanukkah tradition in my house. I make general chow's chicken. Mmm. Eitan, I have to tell you, if I started from scratch and I had to invent a whole new food culture, I would be... I would absolutely say, in this food culture, we are going to have a holiday where everything is fried. <laughs> I mean, that is a culture I want to be part of. I mean, that's honestly my personal <laughs> culture. I always, wherever, even right now in my apartment, I have, I, I think, two pots of oil just like always there at the ready. I, I love deep fried food. I mean, I have the metabolism of a racehorse because I'm eight, an 18 year old kid. Uh, but eventually it'll probably catch up to me. But for right now, I'm holding on to it and eating as much fried food as possible. Okay, so donuts, general chicken. What else are you frying around Hanukkah? What are your other fa- favorite fried things? I mean, I'll do everything. I do a lot of crazy videos where I fried stuff. Um, this year I did some really fun, like, different types of donuts every year I try mm. to do. Um, I really love this year. I did a really delicious, like, cardamom sufganiyah, uh, which instead of doing jelly on the inside, I did, like, a cardamom pastry cream. Um, I did another really great one. It was pomegranate glaze with chopped up pistachios. And another one that was really delicious and, oh, honestly, my favorite of the bunch was it was a toasted tahini, caramelized tahini uh, glaze with, have you ever had pulled halva? I have not had pulled halva. Okay, so it's halva that's like almost cotton candy-ish. Uh. It's, it is divine it melts in your mouth kind of like cotton candy but it's a little bit thicker and heftier than cotton candy uh and then you kind of flake it on top and it has this whole like beautiful shape and it is so delicious and i actually drove an hour just to find it when i when i developed the recipe it is divine wait where does one find pulled halva i found it in i want to say not jersey city somewhere in south jersey i literally like called like 10 supermarkets like do you have pulled halva do you pulled halva halva?" (laughs) and then one did and i'm like please walk there grab it hold it in the back i will pay you double the price if you hold it for me oh my god i am just like no i love halva and i love the texture of dragon's beard 
And so I think I have the next thing I need to try. Because you get the halva flavor, but halva can be a little bit heavy, obviously, because it's sesame and there's all the oil in there. This gives you that same amount of flavor, same deliciousness, but in such like a light, airy, beautiful package. Yes, I am definitely hitting it up. I, I haven't had it in like a month. So now I have to go source it again and find it after this conversation. And when you get to the supermarket, it's like you do like three knocks on the back door. Yes. Somebody opens the door, looks around slip, left and slip right. Slip them in a hundred and then we'll give it to you. <laughs> Of all the Jewish holidays, though, the one that has, in my estimation, the most interesting food is Passover, the annual celebration of exodus and freedom. For Eitan, there is one clear star of the show at his family's Passover dinner table. I know every, every Jewish kid says their grandma makes the best chicken soup. I, still, I, I know it's like a thing everyone thinks. I still think that uh, mine is the best, but whatever. Um, so literally it is a thing in my house. Cause usually in Passover, like you're saying, like people will make massive meals for, um, the Seder, um, which is the yeah. evening where with all the whole ceremonies and all different, the things where you tell the whole story and you have all the, the symbolic foods and things like that is there's then the meal. And most people have like massive spreads, like multiple proteins, tons of sides. Like it's a whole thing. Like the, usually they'll, you'll cook for like the whole day before and everything in my house. All we have every year is my grandma's chicken soup with matzo balls that my dad makes because my mom used to make other food, but then no one eats it because we just have the soup. And then after we eat the soup, we're all full. Like, cause we just load up, we'll have like four or five matzo balls, have tons of chicken in the soup. So my mom usually will make like one like brisket just for like people that want a little more food. But other than that, we have the same meal, both nights of the Seders, we just have my grandma's chicken soup with my dad's <laughs> matzo balls. And then if you want, and you're still hungry, Matt, somehow my mom makes like a really great like sauerkraut brisket or something like that. But literally, like I wish I had a, like a whole whimsical long menu to tell you. But in my house, that that is literally it. And every year that my mom's been adventurous, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to make a few things. Don't get eaten. <laughs> you know, I got to say, Eitan, you know, making a grandma soup claim like that, them's fighting words. So I think I have to ask, what is so magical about your grandma's chicken soup? It's going to sound cheesy, but the special ingredient is love. But we've, <laughs> I mean, of course, like as she's getting older, like she's, she's taught me how to do it a bunch of times. There was actually one year, I forget why. So maybe she was busy or something. She couldn't make the chicken soup. She had shown me the year prior how to do it. So I tried to do it and I wasn't offended because I did agree with my family. It just wasn't as good. It wasn't as good. I am the one with the career right. in food. I couldn't do it as well as her. Wow. Now, have you had any uh, confirmation from outside the family that this soup is indeed the bee's knees? Yes, because we sometimes have like people come for Passover um, who are not in our family. But when like the whole family's sitting there saying it's the best chicken soup, my grandma's sitting right there. Who isn't going to agree? <laughs> I mean, imagine like you'd be like thrown out. Like, I mean. Yeah. Like, you're not getting an invite next year. So, I mean, I feel like, to be honest, if we're going to be fair, I feel like the judgment of someone who's sitting at the table with us at the meal um, is maybe not the most unbiased. <laughs> well, now I need to see a picture of your grandma because maybe she's just very large and muscular. And, in fact, <laughs> she, it's, it's, like, through a, <laughs> it's perhaps just through a reign of terror that, you know, that she has had established that she has the best chicken soup. You know, she's sweet, but um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like 
it's almost like when everyone's like, my, my the best parents. Like, they're the best parents for you. Like, I mean, is everyone's parents the best parents? I mean, maybe. It's like, it's like it's everyone's yeah. grandma's chicken soup, the best chicken soup. Yes, it's the best chicken soup for them. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, you know, and I think in all seriousness, um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with, look, your, 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 your tastes, the, your idea of what is delicious is formed when you're young. And exactly. what is it that you have first when you're young? It's, you know, the food that your parents are giving you. So... Your 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 flavor profile that you want has been molded around your own exactly. life experience, and there's something actually really beautiful about that because, well, that's your family, you know. And how, how yeah. great is it that they have the, they make the food that you love the most? So just the chicken soup. You, there's no like haroset or like anything oh, else. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's a good question. So that I kind of put into the whole like ceremonial food category. So Got we it. do have the haroset. We do also have a, um, a tradition. Um, that um, the most a lot of people sometimes will buy their horseradish, um, yeah. but it's called maror in Hebrew. Um, but it's always been a tradition um, that every year that my grandpa would be the one to uh, grate the maror. Um, now that he's passed away this year, um, that is now passed on to us. So we will be. Um, this is our first year that we'll do it. Um, which yeah. will definitely probably be a little bit emotional, but um, he has taught us how to do it every year. It's honestly some of my fondest memories with him are he, we, we once bought him these goggles, like those onion goggles for the Maror, <laughs> and he sat in the kitchen and was grating them with the goggles on. Um, and I must say, like, I think some of my favorite memories with him um, are, are around the holiday Passover when um, he'd be grating the maror, and then him and my dad would be, like, joking around how spicy it is. And, like, with, for my grandpa, it was never spicy enough unless he was literally, like, coughing and his whole face was red. Um, so, yeah, definitely I think some of my fondest memories with him are from, from Passover. I can appreciate that dedication to flavor that you'd want to actually subject yourself to punishment to, oh. to make sure it's there. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of in line with the holidays, like to feel the the bitterness of the tears of um, the Jews in Egypt. Um, and, oh my God, I love Karosa. Like, I think my favorite part of the whole the whole Seder is we have like this whole long part in the beginning where you like read about the story, which t- can take an hour. If you do it oh, slow, yeah. it can take two hours. If you're really quick, it can take half an hour, but whatever. <laughs> it, it feels like eternity. And then you get to the part where you do all the little ceremonial sandwiches and then the final meal. And when you bite in, there's a sandwich. It's matzah, which is like the flat, um, mm. crisp bread. There's romaine lettuce. There's um, the maror, so the horseradish. And there is the haroset, which is the kind of, it's, it's like grated apple. There's nuts. There's wine. There's cinnamon. It's delicious. Sometimes people put raisins. That and another thing of matzah. And it is just the sweetness of the haroset with the kind of, spiciness of the horseradish in that cracker in the matzah it is um when you bite that like also you know the chicken soup's coming within about 15 minutes so it's like a whole out-of-body experience yeah no i mean i have to say as an outsider i have experienced the excruciatingly long wait for the food (laughs) (laughs) going through the ceremony (laughs) but you know what i find is that it actually makes the payoff so much better while Eitan clearly appreciates Passover food, not everything about Passover is delicious, apparently. Buy Passover cereal. It is, it is, because you can't use flour, you can't use grain. It is made out of, like, potato. It is, it is just as horrific as you'd imagine. It is, it is, <laughs> I, it is undescribably horrific to the point where every year we have hope. We're like, okay, that looks good on the box. We're going to buy it. You pour it into the bowl. It smells horrific. You add in the, the, 
the milk, you it's oh my god. You just try it, like just so you could say you've done it. It is it is like a traumatic <laughs> experience, seriously. I mean, it's kind of like eating flavored chunks like of puffy potato in milk in the morning. It's Oh my god. No, thank you. I imagine that the box, if there were a sort of like commercial box for this, would be like the plainest box possible within like lowercase like courier font Passover cereal with like a face that has just like a straight line across it for a mouth. Yep. And it's like eh. And the pic the pictures, the pictures <laughs> on the box of the cereal are quite deceiving. Oh yeah. Instead of like the kid like with a big smile and the spoon up to their face, it's just like, He's like uh, <sighs> It's edible. <laughs> their, 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 their slogan is, it's your only option. Eat it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think we have a winning product here, Eitan. Yeah, I mean, we could start our own Passover cereal company right now. <laughs> Just eat it. It's yeah. all you got. Your only option. Lesson learned. Passover is great for a ceremonial meal with your family. Not so great on the breakfast cereal tip. I talked to Alana about her family's Passover, which was also defined by her grandma's cooking. I love Passover. I love that there's a story and a script and to like observe my own changing perspective of that script over time is, I just feel so lucky to have that space somewhat created for me. Yeah. Um, my dad's mother, Harriet, she passed away about five years ago, but she was such a powerful, like, matriarch of ceremony, of our family and of ceremonies. And they were more conservative Jews, more observant, more strict with themselves. Um, she was great at, like, setting up a whole Seder, and it just, like, really felt like this mm. big old feast in this, like, mid-century sort of aged, never updated, uh, like 1950s home yeah. setting. You know, there's the Seder plate with mm. all the all the things around it, whatever, and um, gefilte fish and chicken cutlets and brisket and oh, yeah. this, uh, and potato kugel. And um, she always cut the pickles up for me in a particular way. I'd eat so many pickles <laughs> and the wine. Yeah, super aromatic and flavorful and a diverse array of all these different kinds of foods that she coordinated and timed perfectly for this day. And it all has, like, symbolism, you know, literally, mm -hmm. in some cases, baked into it. And it's like, I, th I remember having my first Passover Seder and being like, oh, my God, like, everything has like, mm -hmm. a story. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> that's not salt. Those are tears. You know, this that's not, like, this, this a, that's mortar, you know, and... Um, I love that, actually. I yes. actually think that of all the, like, sort of ceremonial meals I've had, I feel like Passover Seder is up there as, like, one of the most symbolism-rich meals. Uh, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yes, yeah, symbolism-rich. I love that. I I love the way you're seeing it, too, because I think it was just so handed to me, being Jewish already, that I love how it struck you. And... It's also lately I've been thinking about my partner and I have been talking about this paradigm, especially with our first child on the way. I'm, I'm all about Hebrew school because I'm just like, it's, I don't think it's, I don't, I'm not like living by the word of the book. I'm just like, <laughs> this is just what we got. And it's just a frame of reference. And it's not like our kid can be like, this is bullshit if they want totally. But I, you know, it's just the, the context that is available to us. Um, 
But so we've been talking about our Judaism a lot, my my husband and I, and it's like, I'm so, we're both so over the nebbishy Jewish, overly neurotic, suffering for no reason culture, and more about like, Jews are originally like African desert mystical Jews. And right. when you bring up the Seder, it like reminds me, it's like, we are so, we are such a magical people with such a, an imaginative you know, way about us and available to us, I think. And it's just so, it's so free, actually, the symbolism and, and so bold. African desert mystical Jews. I can totally get down with that. And now that I think about it, I see Alana's philosophy shine through in her character, Alana Wexler on Broad City. I don't know if you've watched that show. If you haven't, you should. Ilana Wexler is like this magical, mystical being, full of confidence and swagger, and frankly, such an antidote to the stammering, self-loathing Jew that became such a norm in pop culture. Speaking of African desert mystics, which is not something I think I can say too often, I want to play for you another song by Gitkin. A reason why I picked Gitkin for this episode is that his music truly embodies the crisscrossing cultures that make up the Jewish identity. We heard Middle Eastern-tinged surf rock in his first track. And now we're listening to Cancion del Rey, which brings together a cumbia rhythm with Tuareg guitar vibes. It's such a great tune to bop around to, so enjoy Cancion del Rey by Gitkin. about Alana's favorite Passover dishes, and we'll talk to Chef Einat about her family's tradition of Shabbat dinners, which highlights the other major thread that I think ties together Jewish food culture. Find out what it is after this. Let's go back to the topic of Passover. Ilana told me about her favorite dish. I hosted a Seder two years ago, and so my dad was here and came over, and it was just me and my husband and my dad, and I like made the food for the first time and it was actually great just a three person Seder. Like I was thinking about my grandma and these, and, and these matriarchs of all these families and all these different um, cultures of families, how they time the meal, you know mm. what I mean? Across a day. I'm just like, damn, like I just had so much help and it was just a small group of us. But um, I made this potato kugel and it's like, finely grated food processed potatoes plus flour and baking soda. So it becomes like almost like a cornbread version of potato. Okay, it's good. My husband actually like loved it more than I thought he would. But what I thought we were going to make was my grandma made this. It was like she'd make mashed potatoes and then put this, put them in this like um, circular white deeper baking dish Mm. and then bake bake that. And it would ha- like create this skin on top that was like unparalleled. Oh and I thought I was going to make that. So I, I really look forward to making it um, in the future because that shit was so 
good and got so like brown on top and then you cut into it almost like a Cake, oh but I made God. the other kind of potato cocoa, which was pretty good. Was pretty good. <laughs> well, the other one's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like truly fine, but it is no like Grandma Harriet, like deep dish potato cake thing, oh whatever. Oh my God. But then, oh, it was so good, Peter. Like a dummy, I stupidly asked Chef Anat whether she observed Passover. Of course, what I think, what do you think I am, an animal? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, Passover is big. This year we did 20 people because it's COVID uh, and everybody needs to be tested before they come. I did it upstate. And a few years ago, I did 43 people at my Brooklyn home. And that was amazing. I love that. We did a, a, we had a lot of kids back then. And we did a whole symbols of the Ten Commands was interactive. So we got small frogs to throw on the kids and uh, a shiny blue fabric to open the ocean and let Moses go. We have the Pharaoh costume and each one, it was super, super cool. We really made like a theater before so the kids can really enjoy that. And it's not just like reading the Agada for two hours. It just can be very painful. <laughs> yeah. And usually we, we'd read some, we sing, and then we eat because everybody by then so hungry. And um, I have, I have every year I have something I'm waiting for, and that's a Yamanai dish, and it's, it's called fatut. Mm. It's broken matzah with chilbe sauce. Did you ever heard about chilbe? No. It's fenugreek sauce. So basically, we take the fenugreek seeds or powder, it depends, and soak it overnight. Now, if you have a high cholesterol, you drink that shitty water. It's super disgusting, but your cholesterol guarantee going to go lower. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then we ground the fenugreek with a lot, a lot, a lot of cilantro, lemon, a grated tomato, and then some schug at the end. And it's bitter. I love this sauce. It's to die for. I always get very careful because it's make me stink. So I can be around people a lot after, but it's one of my favorite things. So we put this chilbe sauce on top of the broken matzah and a little bit of the Yamanite soup. And it's like, look like porridge. Next time we meet, I'm going to make you. I have the chilbe sauce always frozen. I have like pints always for any emergency. <laughs> emergency chilbe. I love it. No, you know how many people come in from Israel and said, I'm dying for chilbe. And I was like surprised. You know what? It's your lucky day. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. All right, all right. We're going to take a step away from Passover Seder, although I have to say I could easily have done an entire episode on it. It's one of the most interesting traditional meals in the world, and if you've never been to one, you have between now and next spring to cozy up to your Jewish pals and cross your fingers for an invite. If you get one, take it. It's a wonderful and delicious window into culture. Beyond holidays, there's actually a weekly tradition that also comes with its own idiosyncrasies, Shabbat. And for this weekly meal, Chef Einat definitely does not mess around. I'm a very secular person, I'm marrying a non-Jew, a French guy, and with all that, I have to say that the Shabbat dinner, it's a ceremony and it's a holy thing for me until today. So Sh Shabbat dinner, Friday night at my home, even now with the kids, with my friends, and it's and not exclusive, it's very, exclu it's like super inclusive, everybody, and I really like that. And I remember as a kid, I didn't like it so much. It was a mandatory. Yeah, and 
for a lot of our listeners who might not be familiar with it, there are restrictions associated with Shabbat dinner, right? So could you speak to some of the restrictions? So it's very different between our observe, observe and Yuhar. So my parents back then was very religious. That's mean that the minute Shabbat come in and Shabbat mean from Friday until the sun going down till yeah. Saturday when until evening. So it's like around 25 hours of you can't light uh, light any fire so you can cook so everything needs to be cooked ahead that's why the Jewish have a lot of chamin, uh, chuland a lot of like uh, overnight cooking the Yemenite have a lot of different bread that we cook overnight we have tbit the Iraqi have this chicken with rice that is overnight we have a lot of different things that we cooked overnight every culture have their own things and before Shabbat before Friday my mom would be super stressed the house need to be spotless clean We everybody need to take shower with the best clothes imagine things Thanksgiving every week. Oh my God, I love it. But Thanksgiving without having the oven on the day of, right? So could you just like paint a picture for what Shabbat dinner looked like uh, growing up in Israel? There is a rule that you have to eat fish because fish in Hebrew means seven and Shabbat is the seventh day, whatever. There is all kind of spiritual thing. So we have to have fish, but that's not mean there is not going to be beef and chicken, maybe both together. And then there is have to be Yemenite soup was for my dad, which is already heavy because this soup is like or chicken soup or oxtail soup or, or sometimes beef uh, leg, calf mm. like uh, which I love bomero. That was my mm. favorite. And then we're gonna have always tons of salads, yeah. And then the main course, which my mom Persian, there is no there is no day without rice, yeah. Very similar to Asian, like a lot of Chinese culture, I would say the rice is have a lot of like power you know i have respect to that and we didn't call it tadik back then i heard the name tadik just when i came to the state it's we call it bon which bon i think mean the potato we do always potato on the uh. bottom so we have that rice that changing every week we have that rice with probably fasanjun mm -hmm. which is like the pomegranate things my mom call it off which means black chicken because it gets so dark and then she will have beef too oh my god it keeps going <laughs> she's not just chicken she will always have like pieces of like kind of uh sofrito something beef lamb chop kind of like a all kind of things it's too much it's like a lot <laughs> and the and so just so i'm clear on this the the stews and whatnot, they're, they're being served at like room temperature, right? Because no, everything is hot. We have uh, flats. So my mom have, the oven is on, but you can't, okay, so they have a Shabbat clock. It's funny, right? You heard about that ever? Actually, my, my oven, my oven has that and I never really knew how to use it. Uh, so they put the clock outside of the building. There is a meter and they put this clock on the meter. So by the time, and then they can connect the part of the house. So not all the house go down. So the, the part of like, where is the cooking still on? And then everything else, all the light is going down. And then uh, my mom will have a, a plata, we call it, just a, a flat, you know, and she will put all the food on top. So it will be hot. I see. You just can't, you just can't, can't, can't cook that of turning it on. That makes sense. Got it. Well, it makes sense within these rules. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not really makes sense. That was always my argument. Well, uh, you know, what's funny is like the more I've thought about Jewish, but I'm obviously not Jewish, so you're not a heavy grain of salt. <laughs> um, but I think of, you know, because Jewish food exists around the world. And it seems to me that one thing that really distinguishes Jewish food from the host culture in which the Jews are living 
are the rules, right? It's like the rules, whether it's kosher or Shabbat or whatever it is, the Jewish community has to adapt their cuisine, the, the, the host cuisine to like a distinctly Jewish version of that cuisine because of the rules. And so in a way, for me, like as an outsider, I look at it, I'm like, those rules are weird. I don't necessarily understand, but I do really appreciate what's come out of those rules, which is a really beautiful, like, tapestry of cuisines. Yeah. I totally, I always ask that. How people translate, like, the local cuisine. Like, in Brazil, there is a huge Jewish community. How they do feijoada? Mm -hmm. This is all pork. It's based on pork. How they do this kind of food? Are they still cooking it with beef and trans, you know, like there is a lot of things. How they cook things that need to be fast. Like if the, there is That's still right. tiny community in Asia, the Asian food need to be prepared ready and fast. It's a walk, mostly a lot of time it's a walk things and it's one, two, three, you're done. You can, it's not slow cooking. It's like most of the time, right? <laughs> I'm chuckling because I'm imagining an automated Shabbat walk where like the flame comes on every now and then and there's like a little robot arm that like moves the food around in the walk for you. <laughs> no, I think that'd be quite hard to pull off. No, it's not. <laughs> we'll send you that machine next week. Yeah. All right. All right. One of the things I've come to realize as I've gotten older is that creativity blossoms in the face of restrictions. Ask someone to cook you something, anything, and they'll be paralyzed. Now ask them to cook something using only ingredients that start with the letter A, and you'd be amazed at what can come out of that. In that sense, I've come to truly appreciate the role that rules have played in making Jewish cuisines what they are. Although in some cases, the rules do go right out the window. I waitressed in this uh, little diner for four years, and I got really into bacon and sausage and kielbasa. Oh, yeah. And I was, like, just obsessed. And my parents weren't like, no. They were just like, you're nuts, man. I was, like, frying up a kielbasa every Saturday after work. It was wild. So, actually, um, you talked about bacon before. And I know, like, on Broad City, uh, <laughs> your character was an avid fan of BECs, otherwise known as bacon, egg, and cheese oh sandwiches in New York God. City. Um, is this something that F Ilana yes. Glazer also is into? Oh, God, I love bacon, egg, and cheese. It's the fucking, it, I mean, that is like a last meal. You know what I mean? It's just like so goddamn good with that like stupid orange, like American cheese, which is like. I love it. Jesus, like where did this come from? And like. Old rolls. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's so damn good. It's so, it's just like uh, such a cure for like period cramps or just a shitty day. And like, uh, it's just so yummy. Oh, Hell yeah, I'm a fan. I, I'm like, I, I am at a very like nerd level with my bacon and egg and cheese sandwiches. Uh, oh so. my God, please <laughs> tell me. Tell me, tell well, me. Well, I'll just share with you my most recent favorite sort of trick with bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches that maybe you can employ in your life. But so you know how like at the deli, there's always like the little rack with the chips right by uh, the register? Yes. Get one of those bags. And if they have Funyuns, get mm -hmm. the Funyuns mm -hmm. and then drop those in your BEC. Wow. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I love, I love chips on more of like a chicken club or turkey club, but um, I'm down with that. I'm hella down with that. I always get a side of pickles. Oh, yeah. Mm. Love hot sauce, that. too, on it. To round things out, I ask the question that I ask all of my guests on Counter Jam. You know it if you've listened to this show before. 
If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only eat one Jewish dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? Here's Chef Einatz. So I, I can't have mafrum anymore, which is the Tripoli dish. I always answer couscous and mafrum. That was my answer because that was my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. That's too heavy. I'm going to gain a lot of weight every day eating that. But who cares? Because I'm all alone, right? There you go. I got it. Okay, so couscous and mafrum. I love the thought process. <laughs> mafrum is a Tripoli dish of stuffed potato, kind of like Pac-Man. Uh, you make a hole and you stuff it with beef. You cure it a little bit before so you can stuff it. And then you fry it, yes. And then you braise it in tomato sauce, kind of like spicy, sweet, very interesting. And all this sauce going on top of a fresh handmade couscous. Oh, my God. You had to add that, of course, handmade couscous. Ilana took the classic platter route. A smart choice. <laughs> I would actually go with the shakshuka. And like pita, you know, on the side oh, yeah. and like the full shakshuka meal. That That is such a, oof, like 10 chairs, that restaurant. Mm. They have like shakshuka and then it comes with a little Israeli salad and a pita and, and lebni. That's, that's, that would be it. Uh, so, you're, so you're like cheating by getting the whole combo thing. I'm getting a platter. <laughs> I'm, I yes. ordered, I ordered the dish and I could just do like that meal once a day. And then like the rest of the day, just like fruit and I'm chilling. And Eitan brought it all the way back home. Okay, my first initial reaction, because now I'm really craving it after this conversation, would be chicken soup. My only problem I see with that is that if I'm on a deserted island, it's probably pretty hot, and a hot soup might not be what I want to eat for the rest of my life. Let's call it a temperate island. Fine. Oh, okay. If, if we're not on a tropical island, chicken matzo ball soup, because I feel like you have all the different like sectors of foods. So you have like the starch from the matzo balls. You have the vegetables from the fruit. You have the protein from the chicken. <laughs> if it was like a really hot island and like I was like schwitzing, one of my favorite <laughs> Jewish words. Great um, verb. Love that yes, verb. Yeah. So I love schwitzing. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't love schwitzing. I love using the word schwitzing. <laughs> yes. um, then it would be chicken soup. Yeah. Chicken matzo ball soup. It's fitting to end on that note. Even if Jewish cuisine comprises Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Mizrahi, and many, many other cultures, there are indeed a few common threads. Notably, holidays, rules, and grandmas. We've got one more tune from Gitkin to round out this episode. Another surf rock song that weaves together Western, African, and Middle Eastern vibes. Talk about an intoxicating groove. Enjoy El Millonario by Kitkin. That is it, folks, for this episode. You know I have to say it. Leave a friendly review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Shout out to our guests, Eitan Bernath, Alana Glazer, and Ninat Admoni. Shout out to all grandmas everywhere, including my own beloved grandma. Rest in peace. Shout out to Gitkin and Wonder Wheel Recordings for the phenomenal music. Shout out to the Food 52 team and especially Coral Lee and Harry Sultan for making the magic happen. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode of Counter Jam. <laughs>